Welcome to Siphon Orange, North Orange County Politics. I'm your host, Jody Bowman. We're continuing our series on judicial candidates for the June ballot with Ray Brown for seat 21. Uh, Ray Brown is an experienced attorney. He's certified by the state bar as a specialist in civil trial advocacy with many awards. A lot of people have talked to me about his professional demeanor that's perfectly suited for the bench, that he approaches the law with reverence and respect, and that he'll serve with humility and partiality and decorum to provide fairness and ensure that Orange County courts deliver equal justice under the law. That sounded good to me, so I wanted to sit down and talk to him. Many of my guests will tell, tell us that they come to their career by accident or change of plans. Ray Brown's got an interesting story about how he was helping a friend who was tutoring for the LSAT when he discovered a talent for the law. You'll hear about the two cases that drive him to work for justice, um, where to go for the definition of glean, if you've never heard the word before, um, and possibly some tips for a judge on a bench somewhere about where she should have gone. Why you'll never see a candidate tell you they support crime and chaos over law and order. Why professional demeanor, humility, and respect for the law are important when you're deciding who to vote for for Orange County Superior Court judge. And some great advice to reason logically and argue emotionally. All of that and more in my conversation with Ray Brown. So let's get started. So welcome to A Slice of Orange. Today, I'm continuing my series on judicial candidates with Ray Brown. So Ray Brown is an experienced attorney certified by the state bar as a specialist in civil trial advocacy with many awards. And he's here to tell us why he's running for judge. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So you are running for seat? 21. 21. There are nine on the ballot. It's hard to keep everything straight. It's so crazy. everyone in Orange County is going to get a ballot soon, uh, if you don't already have it, and nine seats with 24 candidates. And so one of the things we're trying to do on this podcast is talk to judicial candidates and find out who you are and what motivates you to run and whether or not we should vote for you. So let's start with a little bit of your background. Why'd you go to law school? Why'd you become a lawyer? Uh, actually, I, I think I'm, <laughs> I have probably a unique story there because it was totally by accident. Oh, I um, love that by accident. Yeah, no, I, I had my first undergraduate degree was in journalism. I wanted to work in the comic book industry and I was, I got a degree in editing and was trying to get in as an editor, uh, ended up becoming a copy editor at a newspaper, which was a great job. I was I was very good at it. I was born to do that job because everything that a copy editor is responsible for is right in my wheelhouse. Um, but it paid next to nothing. Um, it paid twenty thousand eight hundred a year, and I realized, yeah, if I want to actually have a life, I can't stay in this job. I have to do right. something more. So I was actually considering. When I got my psych my journalism degree, I had taken psychology classes and I really liked it. Um, I thought social psychology was fascinating. I liked the idea of potentially being a counselor because I like talking to people. I like listening and helping people with their problems. Um, so I was I, I started uh, going back to get a second degree in psychology. In the meantime, I had a best friend who was still my best friend. We had paper routes together in junior high. His name is uh, Andy Turk. He's uh, he's an attorney with a firm in Arizona. 
Um, and I, of course, I grew up in Arizona. So Andy and I had paper routes in junior high. Andy always wanted to be a lawyer. And so after high school, um, Andy was a year behind me. He took the LSAT, the law school admissions test, and he did pretty well. At the time, the LSAT was was scored on a scale of, I don't think, it's not zero to 48, but something to 48. 48 sure. was the top. And Andy got a either a 40 or a 42, which was good enough that Kaplan offered to let him teach LSAT prep courses. So Andy wanted to show off how smart he was. So he gave me and another friend of his an LSAT practice test. And I got I a 44 this. on the practice test. So I was like, all right, I, I guess I'll take the LSAT. And so I took the LSAT and I basically, I submitted it to Harvard, Stanford, and ASU. Cause I thought, you know, if I'm going to pay a ton of money for law school, then it better be a damn impressive law school. Otherwise sure. I'm going in state at ASU. So I got admitted to ASU and uh, even then, I was not planning to be a lawyer. I just thought, you know what? Uh, I'll I'll graduate in two and a half years. I graduated college in two and a half years. I got my wow. second psych, I got my second degree in psychology, and then I thought I'll, I'll I'll power through law school, do that in two and a half years, and I'll have a law degree. It can't hurt, and it can't hurt. It can't hurt. It'll and, make Andy look good. Yes, and uh, so the I did not send out any resumes because I wasn't planning to be a lawyer, but I did on-campus interviews and graduated in December 92. And this one firm that did on-campus interviews was located in Palm Springs, uh, Tuverson and Hilliard. And I just had one on-campus interview with them. And then I got a letter in the mail from them, which typically means rejection. And I opened the letter and it said, we'd like to extend an offer to you. Oh, wow. So strange. The sure. uh, no one calls me. There's no second interview. You're just making me an offer. And so I went out to Palm Springs and kind of interviewed the firm and the area to see if I wanted to live there. Sure. And went ahead and thought I'll give it a try. And that was I went out to California on um, St. Patrick's Day, March 17th of '93, and that was and it. The rest is history. Yeah. So I love this story because I get so many students that feel like they're so behind because they don't know exactly what they want to do. And, and so I hope they'll listen to this and find out that, uh, you know, accidentally finding your career is abs- absolutely okay. It had never even crossed my mind. That's amazing. So now you're a lawyer and catch us up on how we go from starting uh, your job in Palm Springs to now running for office and, and wanting to be a judge. What have you seen in courtrooms that inspires you to go behind the bench? um, You know, the, it's a combination of things. It's what I've seen in courtrooms, what I've experienced with both good and bad judges. The, you know, I've been doing this for 29 years. um, And the, I've seen a lot of really good judges and a lot of really bad judges. And I bet. When, I talk, when I talk about bad judges, I don't mean that they ruled against me because that's going to happen. You know, I'm taking a position, if they disagree with it, that's fine. But there are, there are a decent number of judges out there who are just 
they come into court or you come into court before them. They seem angry, hostile. They don't want to be there. They, they clearly hate their job and the people they have to deal with. Um, they have prejudged the law, the facts, the evidence, the people. And it's just a horribly unpleasant experience. And win or lose, you leave there feeling like that, that was not how this process was supposed to work. Mm-hmm. That, that person did not do their job. They, they didn't listen to everything and make a thoughtful, considered decision. Um, the, uh, and let me give you a, a couple of examples. The, uh, and I won't name names, and neither of these judges are in Orange County. Okay. Um, but uh, one judge, uh, everyone, as soon as I start describing that judge and the area to other attorneys, they knew who, know who I'm talking about because he screams at attorneys. Ugh. He's mean and nasty to them. And he actually, I had a bench trial, you know, a trial before the, the judge rather than the jury in front of him a number of years ago. He ruled against me. I took him up on appeal. The court of appeal issued a pretty scathing opinion against him, really uh, questioning his his reasoning, uh, published decision, which judges don't like. And of course. so then they, they sent it back to him for, uh, they, they decided the case should be, should have been resolved in my favor. They sent it back to him to decide damages. And at that point, um, under the law, my client has the right to do something called a peremptory challenge, which is say, you know what, we're not sure we're going to get a fair shake before this judge. We would like a different judge. And so my client decided to do that. And so we came before that judge and I, I let them know, well, my client filed a peremptory challenge, Your Honor. And he just started screaming at me that, oh, Mr. Brown, in his great wisdom, thinks it's better that this should go before some other judge and who knows nothing about the case. And I'm thinking to myself, this is exactly why my client thought they should file a peremptory challenge. Um, Another case. Absolutely. Proving the point. Exactly. Um, Another case that I mentioned that partly just for the humor value, because I, I still can't believe this happened. And it was so surreal being there in court. I tried a case up in Northern California and I am, I'm doing the redirect examination of my expert witness. Um, and I'm asking her the, you reviewed some depositions in this case, correct? And she says, yes. And I said, all right, what, what did you glean from those depositions? And the other side objects, and I I don't remember what the other side's objection was. Um, It wasn't what the conversation ended up becoming, because then the judge calls us over to sidebar, which is outside the presence of the court reporter and the jury, just a discussion informally with the judge. And the judge proceeds to tell me she does not know what the word glean means. And and I am not to use that word in her department oh, ever again. No. And I thought, okay, this is so weird, but fine. At least she didn't put it on the record because that would have really been crazy. Then at the end sure. of the day, at the end of the day, we're about to leave. We say goodbye for the day. And the judge says, oh, wait, before we go, 
I want to put on the record about the gleaning. And the judge proceeds to put on the record and states in open court, uh, Mr. Brown was asking questions of his witness and asked her what she had gleaned. And I told him, I don't know what that word means. And I ordered him never to use that word in my courtroom again. And I'm like, I'm just standing there, you know, keeping wow. poker face thinking this, you have a computer in front of you. Correct. I, I've said a word that you don't know the definition to. Rather than use your computer to look up the definition, your answer is stop trying to expand my vocabulary. Don't use that word, wow. which I honestly thought was a pretty common word ever it again. It is, but you could, I mean, by context clues, you could figure it out. Right. You could use the, the wonderful invention of a book called a dictionary. So many other paths she could have used if she didn't know the word. Yeah. And, and it's interesting you say that because um, I, I think that that is one of uh, professors spend so much time in classrooms before we start our jobs. Teachers spend so much time as students before they start teaching. And, and the same is true of, of attorneys who then become judges. And the best advice I got before I started teaching, my dear mentor at Cal State Fullerton said, make a list of everything your professors did that were, was good and you liked and make a list of all the things the bad professors did, do the things the good professors did, and try not to do the things the bad professors did. That's and that great. has guided me throughout my entire career of, I respect my students, I respect their time, I wanna be fair, I give them the benefit of the doubt until they prove they don't deserve it, all of those sorts of things. And I think the story I keep hearing from attorneys is the same of I want to be the kind of judge I wanted as an attorney. And, and that speaks for all of us. It's, it's who I want when I'm on a jury. If, if I ever end up in court, in either civil court or criminal court, I want a good judge, not one who rules for me or against me. That's not what this is about. Exactly. It's about, and I, and I keep hearing again and again, judicial demeanor, professionalism respect. And unfortunately, that's on the list of what is lacking in our current judges. Yeah. And, Not well, all. It's the exception. It's, you know, it, it, it's the reason, right? It, it's the, it's what's spoiling the experience for some people, but for those people, for those defendants, for those victims of crime, for those on the jury, that is their only experience is with that judge. So the totality of, of, of it's only one, it's only two, it's only a few, doesn't matter when it is your entire case. Right, exactly. And the, the other thing that I think really goes into it is humility, the, which sounds strange. You know, the um, Governor Newsom has taken the position that, you know, the thing he looks for most in, in judges is humility. And when you first hear that, you think, you want somebody who doesn't think they're good enough to be a judge, but no, that that's not what it means right. in this context. It's that you don't think you know everything. You know, I, I I've been doing this for almost thirty years. I certainly have developed an understanding of how I think the law works, but I could be wrong. For one thing, the law changes. So if you come before me with some argument, explain it to me. Okay? Right. Cite the, the statute or the case that you think supports your position. Explain to me why you think that. 
you know, I'll give the other side time to respond and I'll look into it and decide. But you can't just shut people down and say, no, that's wrong. I know how it is. Right. Right. Absolutely. So you decide you're going to run for judge. What does that look like? Uh, Honestly, nothing like I thought it would. I I originally, uh, I tried uh, two big cases a a number of years ago, back to back, one in 2003, one in 2004, that really uh, influenced my, uh, drove me to want to become a judge. Um, the, uh, and I am going to get around to answering your question. It's just sure. a lengthy process. The, the first one was a federal civil rights wrongful death police shooting of a 17 year old boy in uh, Huntington Beach. And it was a case against the Huntington Beach Police Department. Um, and the, it was, it was a, a horrible case where the Huntington Beach police uh, maintained that they had done nothing wrong. They shot and killed this kid. It was a good shooting. They said that he was trying to break into cars in the neighborhood. The DA's office investigated, decided it was a good shooting, didn't press charges. Well, I got assigned the case by my firm at the time, looked into it. Um, and ultimately what happened was about six months after the shooting, a guy came forward. Well, and let me give you some background. The basically so two Huntington Beach officers are driving through this community. They see a young Hispanic male looking into cars parked on the side of the road. Uh, they decide that he's trying to break into them. One of them jumps out of the car and chases him, loses him halfway around the block, then walks back to where the chase started sees a young Hispanic male standing in that same driveway. And it's Cinco de Mayo, by the way. Um, So sees a young Hispanic male standing in that driveway, holding what appears to be a rifle, tells him to raise his hands because he has his back to him. And according to the cop, the male turns and points the rifle at him. He fires, the cop fires eight times and kills him. Turns out it was a toy gun. But here's what actually happened. Six months later, they arrest a a different guy, young Hispanic male, who in the process of getting arraigned and stuff or getting charged, tells them, you know, that kid you shot six months ago, that wasn't the kid you were chasing. You were chasing me. So it turns out the kid they shot was not the kid that they had chased. Oh, Um, wow. And what we proved in the course of trial was that they also didn't, he did not turn and point the rifle at him. He was shot in the back. So what actually happened was they walk up, this kid at Cinco de Mayo, he happens to be, I mean, at at worst, he was guilty of underage drinking on Cinco de Mayo. So he happens to be walking home through his neighborhood, sees this toy rifle, which we do know belonged to the people whose house it was picks it up for whatever reason, thinks it's cool. A cop from behind tells him, raise your hands in English, but he doesn't speak English. Um, And then the cop shoots him in the back and kills him. The kid never turns, never points the rifle at him. So uh, got a $2.1 million verdict against the Huntington Beach Police Department. Um, And that, I, I cannot describe the overwhelming feeling of satisfaction that I had that 
this was this was a young boy who had basically the system had decided he got what he deserved. Right. Nobody's going to face any consequences for this right. whatsoever. So getting some form of justice for him was was huge for me personally. I mean, it, it was so satisfying to to be able to provide some sense of justice to his mother right. and his sister who were driving the case. Um, then the following year, uh, I got assigned the case of um, Jimena Orozco, um, which is a case that I frequently get emotional when I talk about. So I'm going to try to power through it. But she was a four-year-old girl. Um, we were hired by her father to sue the County of Orange Social Services. Um, he had made repeated complaints to social services that he believed her the girl's mother and the mother's boyfriend uh, were abusing her. Mm. And the social services, the social workers committed so many ridiculous, insane mistakes. I mean, blatant, black and white. There, there's no argument that it wasn't a mistake. It was, it was just egregious, error after error after error. Mm -hmm. And what ends up happening is the mother's 18-year-old boyfriend carries the, the four-year-old girl's body into a food for less. She's dead. Um, the, at the criminal trial, the coroner testified that, that she died an agonizing death. Um, basically, her internal organs were ruptured and, and she died of sepsis. Oh. Um, just horrific. And, and in this case, in that case, both the mother and the boyfriend were prosecuted. So it wasn't that no one was held accountable, but at social services, no one was held accountable. Right. Um, and in fact, at the trial, which it, it was uh, over two months long, this trial it was 10 week trial, one week of jury selection, one week while the jury was deciding the case. And um, the county put on a woman who trained the social workers. And she testified that they did absolutely nothing wrong. Everything was according to their training. And oh. I argued in closing argument, I can't believe they put up this woman as their expert. Correct. She's not, she's not a solution. She's part of the problem. If Correct. she thinks this is okay and that they did nothing wrong, and that's how she's training social workers, then she should be a defendant here. Absolutely. Uh, ultimately, the jury awarded. It's systemic. It's it's that that you were able to reveal that if you don't think that there was a problem, then nothing is being resolved. You know, you know I often wonder. Okay, so the the, the the you know huge judgment that you got against the Huntington Beach police, but it's not the police themselves who are paying it. And so, is there change as a result? Do they just pass it on to the taxpayers? If social services, you know, you just wonder from the outside, and what you hope happens. What all of us, society hopes happen is that there is a reckoning, that there is a revelation that what we are doing is hurting people, getting our community members killed, N not just by the individuals pulling the trigger or not just by the individuals who are, are at fault, but also the system is failing. That's exactly right, Dia. I mean, I left that case feeling 
vindicated on behalf of my client and and the little girl that I was speaking right. on behalf of, but really hoping, although not feeling confident in it, but hoping that this results in some change to the system that, you know, right. the county would feel it in their pocketbooks and go back and think, all right, well, maybe we need to reconsider this before we get hit with another 10 cases. With, like with another, right, absolutely. And, you know, we talk about that in, in, in political science classes all the time that, that, you know, what, what we do when, when families are willing to fight on behalf of what went wrong, that they couldn't save their own child, that we have Megan's law that, that, that establishes a database and we name it after the person so that we never forget that there are real people, real victims of policy failures. And that to fix that, we pass legislation to, to, to hopefully improve the system. And, and so I, I always wonder after the judgment is, is passed, you know, did the Huntington Beach Police Department have a reckoning? Did they say what we're doing isn't right? How do we change it? How do we reform this? How do we make sure that never again does this happen? Does social services do that? And and I'm not ex- expecting you to know the answer from it, but just we just have to have those judgments result in soul searching for the system. Right. Well, and in the case of Huntington Beach, I'm pretty sure it didn't. The I'm pretty sure it didn't either. That, but the officer involved in that case, um, he was taken off the streets for a while because there was all this publicity. Um, but I, I, I'm pretty sure he ultimately went back to doing the same yeah. exact job. Social services. We have we have the same hope of corporations something. being hit with massive fines, and they often just raise their prices and calculated in the cost of business. And I'm pretty sure they can even write it off on their taxes. But eventually, if, if you, you make enough of a fuss, it that's, has to result in change. That's that's the hope. That That's what we're hoping for. So you make the decision to run. Right. And what is that experience like? Um, it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, on the one hand, you know, I've been. But I'm, believe it or not, that's actually a really positive thing in my mind. <laughs> I, I am always a little bit suspicious that somebody loves being a politician no. when the job is to be a judge. No, you know, I, I, I get it. If you're going to be a legislator, it's, it's part and parcel of the job. But you, you are essentially we're forcing you to campaign to be nonpartisan and objective. And you've got to go out and raise money and talk to people and tell them why you're the best. So uh, the um, fundraising is by far my least favorite. part. Oh. It's just horrific. Um, the uh, beyond that, I mean, it, it's very time consuming. I mean, I, I honestly, you know, when I, uh, I've told people on the campaign trail, you know, and, and I've had, you know, an event a week, something like that, but, um, and I'm, I'm 56, but I, I look at people, you know, who a year and a half ago, two years ago, were calling Biden tired. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding. I mean, I have no idea how this 70-something-year-old man is doing this. Yeah. How can you have that much energy at that age? I mean, yeah. this is exhausting. At my right. level, it's exhausting. At, at that level where they're just flying around the country constantly, constantly on stage, on, you know, on a microphone, I, I just can't imagine. 
I don't remember who it was, but he was a presidential candidate that didn't last long. I think he was an actor turned politician, but they, the media was making fun of his presidential campaign schedule because he'd have one event at 10 a.m. and then he was done for the day. And I'm like, oh, I that's my style. Yeah. I, <laughs> these people who have 17 events in a day, they're crazy. I need a nap. Yeah, the uh, I, I mean, I, I will say going around and speaking at these events, I've seen a lot of candidates who are really inspiring, um, yeah. great people, you know, clearly who are in it for the right reason, who, who do not seem to be in it for money or ego or fame. Um, they, they just want better government. They, they want yeah. people and the planet to do better. Um, so that, that has been great. And I've met a lot of really nice people who, you know, weren't politicians, but who are caring, concerned voters. Um, yeah. A lot of really great people. Um, That's the positive yeah, it's, side. It's it's just exhausting, and yeah, I I will. I, this is my one time I'm going to run. I'm putting everything into this one. I hope I win, but if I don't, then it's back waiting to see if the governor appoints me. Right, which is the other way, and 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 that kind of speaks to why there are so many. Right. And, and I've shared articles in the past of that in 2014, Governor Brown kind of stopped appointing deputy district attorneys to Orange County. We have right. all of these scandals and search Voice of OC, search the OC Weekly archives uh, to, to see all of these scandals with the snitch scandal and the evidence scandal in our district attorney's office, in our sheriff's office. And, and Governor Brown and Newsom has, has followed suit, said, we're not appointing these deputy district attorneys anymore. And that has led to this massive change for this ballot, which is that there are nine open seats where we can only assume that these judges decided not to let their seat go in the middle of their term where they would be a replaced with an appointment and you and some of the other, Kimberly LaSalle, you know, some of these other people would have applied and instead have what seems to me in a backroom deal tapped a district attorney on the shoulder and said, why don't you run for my seat? And it feels a little coincidental to me and to others uh, that there's an Orange County district, a deputy district attorney on only one in almost every single one of these races. And that ballot designation is gold in Orange County. Right. And one of the reasons I'm doing all of this advocacy and awareness and trying to ring the bell and signal signals, uh, signal bells is because that's a troubling ballot designation for some of these folks. Not all. I, you know, I'm, I'm not in any way saying that everybody who's a deputy district attorney shouldn't be on the ballot and, and right. be taken into consideration. But what are you finding as far as this system that kind of locks out anybody who doesn't have that ballot designation? It, it, it's an it uphill is, battle for those of you who don't have that. It is very strange. And I, I have been trying to get appointed for a number of years after, after the the case involving Jimena Orozco, while the jury was out for a week, this was before everybody had a cell phone in their pocket. So you were required, we had to sit there in the courtroom for a week while the jury was out, Right. which was, which was actually nice because I was getting paid to sit there and talk to the judge, to, to BS with him for a week. 
And um, it was Judge Terry Kolaw, who's very well-liked and respected, uh, who was who retired last year. And it was Judge Kolaw who told me during that week, you should apply to be a judge. So I did. Uh, and at the time, the governor was Schwarzenegger. He selected me and sent me down to the Jenny Commission. Um, so in 2005, I interviewed with the Jenny Commission. The... Um, the Jenny and who's Commission. on that commission? We haven't talked about that before on the podcast. Oh, okay. That's the Judicial Nominees Evaluation Commission. So it is, they send out questionnaires to judges and lawyers throughout the community. They call everyone on, you, you have to fill out this PDQ, which is a 50 page document with all these essays and every information about everything about you. And and they contact all the attorneys and judges and references in there. So a true vetting. Oh, yeah. Very, very, very thorough vetting. And then they interview you. And then ultimately, they rate you either qualified, not qualified, well-qualified, or exceptionally well-qualified. They only tell you if you're rated not qualified. Otherwise, you never find out what your rating is. Oh, secret rating. So I was not ever told my rating. So I was at least rated qualified 17 years ago. Um, but for whatever reason, Schwarzenegger never ended up appointing me. Okay. And then I've, then I've had no luck with uh, Governor Newsom or Governor Brown before him. I, I, I really was hoping maybe Governor Brown was thinking, would think we're relatives, but no. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, you know, now, well, and, and judges have been reluctant to retire. So there have been fewer positions for the governor to appoint as a result. Well, there have been there have been a decent number of open positions and there's been there's still positions that haven't been filled, but there have been positions and they've appointed people. Um, it is very, very strange that we have this huge influx of vacancies this time. And I think uh, it has to be two explanations. One is, I think some of it is driven by COVID that, you know, the remote court, I think a lot of judges were frustrated by that. But the bigger reason is uh, to, to specifically retire at that time during that like one month window that they, there is a concerted decision by a judge that they do not want the governor to appoint them to appoint right. a replacement. Right. So, uh, and, uh, you know, you mentioned the, in the nine offices, there's only one where there's not an Orange County DA running. And, and there's plenty of other actually, DAs. Yeah. And that is, right. And that is actually the one that is, does not involve a judge retiring. Correct. That, that was a judge who died during that window. He pulled papers to run and then he passed away before the actual filing deadline, yes. which opened up his seat. Um, but other than that, which sort day. of proves my theory. Yes. Yes, it does. That there wasn't an Orange County DA ready to go. And, they and had already signed up for those other eight open seats. And the legislature has kind of enabled this. It was already the case that DAs had an advantage because they get to put district attorney. But it used to be that non-DAs could put something more descriptive. And then I believe it was in 2018, the legislature passed a new election code statute that says if you're not a, a government employee, all you can put is lawyer, attorney, attorney at law, or counselor at law. Pick one right. of those four. That's it. Um, 
So, I mean, if you have Which an gives us, the voters, vote, no information. Because, right. I mean, you all have to be attorneys. That's one right. of the requirements. Exactly. And all, all four of those terms mean exactly the same thing. Right. Um, and so if you have a completely uninformed voter in these in these races that generally most voters are uninformed about, then going and looking at when they get to the, the ballot box, all they have is a name and either district attorney or attorney at law. So in my case, they have me, attorney at law, my opponent, district attorney. Yeah. So it, it's I, my wife asked me at one point early in the process when I was I was really trying to avoid running against a DA until it became apparent it's impossible. It's it's impossible. That's not an option. Yeah. Every time more seats open up, there's DAs who claim them. Yeah. Um, and my wife asked me why is it why is there the bias in favor of DAs? And I said, well, you got to think about. They have ads running practically 24 hours a day, every day of the week. Right. The criminal justice system is made up of two separate oh. equal entities, the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. So that is how the public Absolutely. Likes. And it's it's really kind of ridiculous because, I mean, I, I get it. I get why the public goes with that because they have so little to go on. But ultimately, you know, you talk to people and they're like, well, you know, I, yeah, I vote for DAs because I want law and order. I'm like, well, no judicial candidate is running on a crime and chaos platform. <laughs> we all want law and order. Um, the, and, and, you know, we're, we're all bound to uphold the law. You're not going to right. get more law and order with a DA than you would from someone else. What you are going to get is a, a diversity of backgrounds and experience. So, I mean, there is a lot of talk about diversity on the bench, but I think we we have to keep in mind that diversity should not just extend to gender, race, uh, sexual identity. Um, it, it should extend to background, too. There are 24 attorneys running for judge, and I believe four of them don't have criminal law backgrounds. The other 20 are all either DAs or defense, criminal defense attorneys. Right. It's, it's overwhelming. And yet a very small percentage of the judges are assigned criminal dockets. There's civil dockets. There's right. trusts and estates. There's, I mean, there, there's all kinds of assignments, judicial assignments, other than criminal. Um, and, and, you know, in this case, you know, the... Uh, I think looking at the candidate statements of all the other candidates and what I know about them, I mean, I think there's only three others that don't have criminal backgrounds. Um, there's only one other, Jessica Chaw, who's a certified specialist. I don't think, I haven't seen that any other candidate has any appellate experience, whereas I have 13 published appellate ex opinions and yeah. I have both of appellate experience. Um, it, it's... I, I think it's important that we get people with a breadth of experience. And there are there are a few reasons why I'm hopeful that in this election, being a DA won't be such an insurmountable obstacle. Running against a DA won't be such an insurmountable obstacle. One is that, as you mentioned, the the office of Todd Spitzer has been overrun by these ethical scandals that have completely eroded public trust in the office that I, I'm not sure how much those will trickle down to the deputy DAs running for judge, 
but you would think it would to some degree. And, you, and you would think. And in my case, um, my opponent actually puts in her candidate statement that she's the chief ethics officer charged with maintaining the public trust in the DA's office. So to me, that seems like at this point, bragging that you served as Hannibal Lecter's dietitian. <laughs> it, it doesn't seem well, like right. something I, you yeah. outing. And, and, and especially depending on how far that goes back. I mean, the, the ethical questions of the DA's office is, is legendary. Um, and so I agree that it's, it's possible that the attention, that, that there are so many, maybe people will start to pay attention. I hope that is true because I think that we really do have to take a close look um, at the candidates. You know, we've got people who, you know, a, a simple Google search will return some ethical violations for some of these candidates. And I just don't right. have a lot of faith that most uninformed, low information voters are going to be doing that. Um, and the ballot statements can say almost anything. Right. Well, and, and one other thing that, and I'm looking for a silver lining here, but <laughs> uh, the the tentative Supreme Court opinion that came out yesterday, I'm hoping that will, at, at the very least, drive voter turnout by by and we record way before we actually publish. So that's the, the leaking of uh, the, the Roe versus Wade, that uh, decision that's, yeah, that we're referring to. Yeah, I think, I think it will definitely bring attention to, to, to the importance of all of this. Yeah, the importance of judges that, you know, the I mean, yeah, Orange County Superior Court judges are not going to be deciding um, the constitutionality of the right to abortion. but Superior court judges become district court judges and district court judges become circuit court judges and circuit court judges become Supreme Court justices. Right. So, uh, I mean, I, I do think. But, but even when the superior court judges is just calling, you know, to use the sports analogy, just calling balls and strikes of uh, when you have bias, it it corrupts justice. And, and so making sure that we have people who follow the law. Correct. Is important. And when we have evidence that there are candidates who do not believe the law applies to them, that 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 don't follow the evidentiary law, that don't follow the Constitution themselves in these positions where they have taken an oath to uphold and, and respect the Constitution, I think rewarding them with the position of judge is is, you know, just the wrong direction to go. Well, and the actually the you're saying the word reward reminded me of something that I that I wanted to bring up if I got any opportunity. The for DAs, it is a very easy decision to run for judge because I mean it's it's almost I mean they're they're going to the courthouse every day anyway, so it, it's not a big change in terms of their commute or their lifestyle, and it's a huge pay raise. But to a lot of people in private practice, for me, it's a pay cut. It's basically right. more more hours, higher workload, less money. So I mean, I, I have people people who I trust <laughs> and love telling me, "What are you doing? Why are you doing this?" Um, <laughs> and it is certainly not for the money or for power, or prestige. It, it's because I want to help people. Because yeah. those two cases that I mentioned, 
made me feel fulfilled. You know, and at this stage in my life and, and my career, I've spent almost 30 years being a lawyer. I, I, I feel like I want to do more, not just for individuals, but for, for a greater number of people, for the, for the county, for yeah. society. And, and and those examples are so poignant because I think it it really shines a spotlight on the fact that we so often forget the importance of civil trials. That that we think it's you know people suing a company for ridiculous things, frivolous lawsuits, it's it's divorce, and and it's so important because this is where our constitutional rights are enshrined. That when a, an institution, when a government entity, when an officer of the law or of the court violates our constitutional rights, it, it isn't a criminal trial. It is a civil trial. Right. And, and so I think it's so important that you brought up those cases where we have these tragedies in our communities and it, and it takes a civil trial to, to, to really try to rectify that and try to bring justice to the, to the victims, but also reform in our system. Um, and I and I agree that we too often when we're voting, particularly with those ballot designations, we, you know, just look at the, the criminal justice section of the court and our our courts in Orange County are so much bigger than that. There's so many other trials. And I wonder, you know, how somebody who spent their entire career as a deputy district attorney only seeing the lens of prosecution handles civil trials and, you know, torts and contracts. And did they right. pay attention in those cases, in those classes in law school? I don't know. Um, but yeah, but I mean, to, to have a breadth of diversity of experience and interest and just, I think it's really crucially important that we look at the breadth of experience on the court. Um, and and I had somebody who said, you know, oh, you seem so biased against deputy DAs. And I'm like, they're overrepresented on the bench. We, we don't need to cry for the underrepresented de- deputies, district attorney. They have so many advantages. I no, you know, I don't think that I'm personally going to change the tide uh, of this, but I just want to highlight it. I just want to bring it to people's attention. I just want to remind people of that. And I think you've done that really well. So one of the things that I loved about your campaign website was, and, and you've given these great examples of it, but I want to just amplify what you said because it's, I think it's beautiful, which is you talk about the importance of giving a voice to those who could no longer speak for themselves. Right. And we hear that often from defense attorneys or prosecutors in, in criminal cases where there are victims. But I, I want you just to tie a bow around it about what that means in civil court about giving a voice to those who could no longer speak for themselves in your trials? Well, like, like I said, the Jimena, Jimena Orozco and uh, Antonio Saldivar, who was the, the young boy in the other case, they had been forgotten. You know, the, the, the government, the city of Huntington Beach, the DA's office, the county of Orange, they had decided that, that those are done that they, we've looked at those and they're fine. All of our behavior was absolutely above board and perfectly the way they were supposed to be. And and it fell to me as the attorney for their families to speak for them and to make sure that they got some sort of justice. And 
more than that, that hopefully something happened to impress upon the decision makers, the people in charge, that something needs to change. These, you know, the Huntington Beach Police Department, the Orange County Social Services, they committed horrendous mistakes. And it it can't be allowed to continue like this. It, It robbed these families of their children and it robbed these children of their lives. And something needs to be done to change that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's so important. So you actually served as temporary judge for Orange County Superior Court. Um, tell us about that. What did you learn from it? And, and, and you know, what should we know about temporary judges? <laughs> uh, temporary judge, it's a volunteer position. Um, the Basically, you're serving as a judge, but it's um, typically like the assignments and the ones that I did were either settlement conferences where you're trying to get people to resolve their differences or small claims. Um, and uh, especially in the small claims environment, what I learned is a lot of what we've talked about, that people want to be heard, that yeah. they want to, you know, certainly they want to win, but at the end of the day, they want to be allowed to speak, to tell their story, to explain why they think they're being wronged or have been wronged, right. and what they think justice looks like. And Absolutely. You know, hopefully, you know, you explain to them your reasoning and why they are, you know, to the extent they're right, to the extent they're wrong. Um, you know, you you bring some peace to them, to both sides. I mean, you're not going to walk away with both sides completely 100% happy, but hopefully you ameliorate some of the the hostility and the friction right. and the... Um, the feeling, the sense of injustice, at least they got heard. Yes. And, uh, yeah, I, I, th- I think that's really interesting. So how long did you serve as a temporary judge? Nine years. The uh, I would have kept doing it, but uh, during you serve in three-year terms. Okay. And, and those last three years, my wife was pregnant and then had our son. And so I was devoting less and less time. And then, if I remember correctly, yeah, I think the, the last year I served was 2015, which was when my daughter was born. And it was just, okay, I got to stop. I, sure. I want to spend as much time as I can with them during this period. Um, so, by Absolutely. the way, I kept going because I, I really liked it. Sure, sure. And, and when you say volunteer, it means you're volunteering for the position, not that you are unpaid, correct? Oh, it means both. You are unpaid. Unpaid for nine years of partial, right? Not full time. Oh no, if you're very, coming very, in very, very part time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not not twenty hours a week, or you know, when whenever you can. So we get pro bono judges to volunteer. Correct. Very nice. I didn't know that. That's interesting yeah, to me. Generally, it's. Um, I mean, at least my assignments were always either small claims or settlement conferences. I think some, some temporary judges um, are allowed to hear some law and motion matters and stuff, I think. Uh, I know there were traffic assignments, although I never took one, but I know they do have temporary judges do traffic. Okay, interesting. Getting the overload, taking yeah. care of, I like it. 
So at the end of the show, I ask everybody questions. Uh, what's the best advice you've ever got or given? Well, Joey Balma told me once that I should write <laughs> down this list. Um, the um, I, I thought about this ahead of time. There's There are two pieces of advice that I have come back to repeatedly throughout my life. And one is um, you have to take this one a little bit with a grain of salt because I think the, the philosophy professor at my community college who gave it to me 30 something years ago kind of took it to an extreme, but okay. he basically told us all uh, never do anything for more than five years. And, and he literally was saying marriage, friendships, jobs, nothing. <laughs> five years, you're done. Which yeah, Oh, the ivory extreme. tower. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I think the general concept behind it, at least the way I took it, was don't be complacent. You know, sure. challenge yourself. That's the only way you grow as a person. So, um, I mean, that's one of the many reasons that I'm running for judge is because, yeah, I've been an attorney for 29 years. I, I want to challenge myself. I want to do more and do mm-hmm. something different. Um, and and I, I think that I have the temperament and the skill set to be a judge. And so I, I'd like to do that. Yeah. Um, the second uh, piece of advice is actually... Uh, a little funny because it was a piece of advice I got from a uh, an instructor in an editorial writing class when I was. I love that both of your your pieces of advice are from professors. So they are. You're but... already making my day with that. <laughs> the editorial writing instructor was giving me a piece of advice about how to write editorials, but it is by far the best advice I've ever heard on being a lawyer, and I tell it to people all the time. He said, reason logically, argue emotionally. And of course he meant it for editorials, but it is absolutely how you have to practice law. And you know, you if you go into a court and watch people argue law and motion matters, and you find somebody who is going through methodically listing all the rationale why they're right, and they have no passion behind them, right. it just falls dead. But on the other hand, if you've got somebody who has all the passion in the world and it makes no sense, that's not going to go anywhere either. You need to reason logically, but you have to have emotion, the passion behind your words. I love that. I, it's great advice for campaigning too. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So what's one book you like to recommend to people? There's another one I debated a lot. Um, I am a big fan of comics and graphic novels, so I, I considered Watchmen. Uh, oh, Neil Gaiman. No, Alan no. Moore. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yes. Um, yes. But if I was recommending just one book, I think I'd go with Mouse by Art Spiegelman. One of the best graphic novels ever. Yeah, absolutely. Mouse is amazing. And you know, just recently hit the Amazon bestseller list because it was banned. Yes, that that's the other reason I thought I would I would submit it, and and it stands up. It really does stand up. If, if it, people it haven't is. read it, it, so, it is amazing and and I think really highlights the the possibilities of graphic novels. And at the time that it was written, it it, it you know was a lonely field, and and it is just blossomed and 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 really grown. And it's amazing to see. The, the, you know, just marriage of, of, of 
content and text with with these incredible art. Um, it's just a beautiful um, well, way and, to express and, and tell stories. I think it is still the only graphic novel ever to win a Pulitzer Prize. So, um, uh, yeah, I think that's true. So, and I will say that if I was to go with just prose novels, I'd go with Frankenstein because I love that novel. Okay. Okay. Good. I love the classic. Yeah. These are, these are interesting. Um, so is there a hopeful message you can share with our listeners? Um, just what I mentioned before that uh, going out and speaking before these various groups, I've really been overwhelmed by how many inspiring people there are running for office who really are doing it for the right reasons. Yeah. I, I, I have certainly found that I've been so impressed with, with some of your, uh, your colleagues who are running for office. So um, yeah, I'm glad to know that that's true in person because I've only met right. everybody on zoom. So finally, who should we talk to next? Well, and, and this is another one I debated and I, I'm going to cheat by mentioning several names before I go with my actual choice. Cause okay. I, I thought about like Pete Harden, Chris Duncan, Jay Chen, all of whom I think very highly of and who I think would be great guests. But I thought I would go with somebody more smaller outside of the mainstream. So I'm going to suggest uh, Dr. Kathleen Tresseter. She is a climate scientist. She's running for Irvine City Council. And she's great. Okay. I have not heard of her yet. And in, in the fall, I'm going to be doing a bunch of city council and school board races. It's going to really heat up. Um, but yeah, that's, I love that you introduced me to somebody. So that'll be fun to follow up. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with me. I really enjoyed getting to know you. And hopefully we can uh, get this out and amplify your campaign so that people know and hear about you. And um, I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Joni. Thank you for listening to A Slice of Orange. I'm Jody Balma. I want to thank our executive producer, Ann Watfett, and our editors and producers, Alexandria Kim and Cindy Gimple. This podcast would not be possible without them, so thanks to them.